Go ahead and pick your speed up your number one now, runway 27, clear to land green dot. Welcome to Oshkosh, guys. Hello and welcome to another exciting episode of the Green Dot, EAA's podcast for anyone and everyone who loves aviation. My name is Hal Bryan. I'm senior editor for print and digital content and publications here at EAA. On my left is... I'm Chris Henry, the EAA Museum Programs Coordinator. And across the table, wishing he was laying down a sick beat, but but just not doing it. <laughs> I don't know if I'm ever going to live that down. Tom Sharpentier, EAA Government Relations Director. I have no idea how it started at this point, but it, it uh, it's a reference that will live on. I think we blame Megan for that. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, you're right. So, uh, so Chris, we have a guest. He's, we do. He's right there in front of you. We do. We have a guest here today. Um, Keegan, thank you for being here. We have Keegan Chetwith with us who is the CAF, which is the Commemorative Air Force uh, Curator. And uh, I'm also proud to call him a friend. Uh, Keegan, thanks for, for coming on the show. Oh, no problem. Thanks for having me. Now, now, Keegan, not to put you on the spot, but would you in turn call Chris a friend? Or is it more like he he thinks you're friends and you're not really... <laughs> no, see, really I wish I was that. that cool, but I think we may actually be friends. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, welcome. It's uh, it's great to have you here. And, you know, as uh, as we're recording this... Looking at my my watch, just about three hours ago, I think just about everybody here got to see something very very cool, and that was the first flight of uh, of That's All Brother, the C forty seven, the lead airplane at Normandy, a project that's been happening here in Oshkosh, but uh, under the auspices of the CAF, it is your airplane. Um, that's uh, that's pretty exciting stuff. Can you can you tell us a little bit about the flight today? Yeah, so uh, you know we're just really really excited. It's a big day for everyone at the CAF. Uh, represents just an enormous amount of just hours basically invested by volunteers across the organization with a wide variety of skill sets and it's it's just really uh it's it's a it's been exciting but also a profound thing for everyone i think i think when it lifted off we all got cold shivers to some degree you know the hair on your arm stands up right. and you just realize that for 10 years the airplane hasn't hasn't been flown for more than 10 years and uh you know looking at it listening to it fly fly for the first time again it's just it represents such an enormous achievement for our organization uh that's all brother's been a project that has driven a lot of growth in the caf it's driven excitement and interest from outside the world of aviation and also from far beyond warbirds you know there's people that are just really enthusiastic about what we're doing um and so just looking at it you know i know there's 22,000 man hours invested in that airplane Um, it took 20,000 hours to build one new so people have invested just an enormous amount of effort and you know you're nervous is it going to fly it flies and it's just this i don't know how to describe it i've I've only been thinking about it for three hours and i don't really have the words (laughs) yet it's you just your heart wants to pound right out of your chest i mean it's it's a pride thing it's an enthusiasm thing but uh you know just i couldn't be happier that the first flight went off without incident without a hitch just textbook in in every regard when you ended up with beautiful weather for it it was uh you know a little bit of a little bit of a wind but uh this morning about four hours before the flight i was looking out the window we had half mile visibility and heavy snow <laughs> yeah. and then all of a sudden about noon the clouds parted the blue sky came out and yeah we were really thrilled about that too because we'd all flown up from texas and uh you know we invited (laughs) a lot of people who contributed to the project and everything and i think sadly the weather forecast kept a lot of folks away um but you know we said at 12 30 we said we're calling the fuel truck down here we're going to push the airplane outside and we're going to see what happens and uh, i don't want to say we parted the clouds but 
the clouds parted over the airplane, so <laughs> maybe. <laughs> Usually that uh, that happens for us in July, but uh, yeah. but we're happy to have sort of a special guest weather controller as, in the form of the CAF a, here in Oshkosh. A really funny aside, um, most of the folks that are over there that are part of the team, they'd never been here when it wasn't AirVenture. Uh, so they're like, where are the tents? Like, when do they put those up? Wow, this place isn't like a giant metropolis. Like, that like is it the... seems like during the the show it is the weirdest feeling the first time you come to Oshkosh, unless you've grown up here first time you come to oshkosh if you've been coming for air venture and you come in the off season it's like i'm coming back to my hometown and, and there was a horrible war you know <laughs> like, where is everybody the, the buildings are gone there's nobody here it's a, yeah. it's a twilight zone episode <laughs> well and now so we're talking about that's all brother and for the supporters uh the folks who've been following the progress of course they know the significance of the airplane but for those maybe who are newer into all of this, can you tell us a little bit about the history of the airplane and the project? Sure. So the airplane, that's all, brother, is the C-47 that led the invasion. Uh, that language is language we actually took from General Brereton, uh, who was the air commander for, for, you know, basically coordinating this whole effort. And what he meant when he said it was not that it was the first airplane or even the first American airplane, but that it was the airplane that was leading the formation. This, this had all the navigational equipment packed into it. This airplane was going to lead Mission Albany, which was the mission to drop the 101st Airborne. And Mission Boston was going to follow on behind that. So basically, with this airplane came our commitment to liberate Europe or die trying. There was no way back after this. This airplane was leading 800 C-47s to drop more than 13,000 Allied airborne troops into France with the expectation that from that point on, we were in it. And so that's six hours before the sort of Normandy that we all know, the D-Day image that's conjured in everyone's mind of the sort of landing craft on the beaches even happens. And uh, so... I'd like to think that our feelings today about the first flight in some ways mirror those of the guys, you know, when they were getting ready for that mission. That just Eisenhower's words kind of echoed in everyone's heads today, this you are embarking on this great crusade. I think that's a really great way to describe it. But, uh, you know, this airplane flew that mission. It dropped those troops. It was not shot up or anything. In fact, it was, you know, some of the crew described it as surreal because they could see the the flashes of light and everything from the flak directed at the aircraft behind them, reflecting on the clouds. Wow. And so they flew back over to England. Uh, they would go on to fly the Dragoon drops in southern France. This airplane participated in Market Garden. We were able to source a photo of this airplane being loaded on September 17th, 1944, for oh, the Market gosh. Garden drop. Uh, it'll go on to fly the missions into Bastogne to relieve the 101st that's been encircled by the Germans. And it closes out the war... Uh, flying Operation Varsity, the major Allied airborne operation to cross the Rhine. Uh, following that, the airplane returns to the States and is surplused out. They basically sell it away n without a thought or regard to its history. It goes into civilian hands. And uh, really ironic thing for people who follow the CAF and, and know what it is we do, that airplane is sold from Walnut Ridge, Arkansas, about a mile from where the nose art collection is being cut off of airplanes at about the same time. Oh, wow. wow. So it's really, really profound. But the airplane uh, goes through 16 civilian owners who we like to say each had their own distinct lack of maintenance program. <laughs> and uh, that sort of carries us through to the, the piece of the story that most folks know from the Kickstarter, where the airplane is found, its history is, is known at that time. And we basically launched this massive effort to save this airplane. Uh, you know, I know we're going to get to talk about the Kickstarter in a little bit, but one of the things that for me as a Warbird enthusiast was most important about that was 
we didn't just crowdsource money, we crowdsourced enthusiasm. Those that were working on the team sort of thrived on the interest and excitement that supporters showed for the project. Uh, you know, when we launched the Kickstarter, we were nervous because we realized we had issued a referendum on the meaning of warbirds. This is a seminal warbird. It's incredible. It's iconic. It tells a powerful story. And we went out to the American public and said, does this matter to you or not? If it does, help us with this project. And for the first couple hours, nothing happened. <laughs> and we were like, oh, no. What if everything we've done is for naught? What if people don't like it or don't care about it? And shortly thereafter, this gigantic tide, this tsunami of interest hit us. People found out about it. They heard about it. You know, they, they basically said, we are with you. We're on this journey together, and we will support this endeavor. And so, you know, it, like I say, that's, geez, I've got goosebumps now, but that's, that has everything to do with why we're here and, and what we're doing. Well, so, so let's get into a little bit to, um, we'll, we'll get into to the, to the fundraising in a little bit, but um, tell us a little bit about uh, how the aircraft was found, where it was found, um, and then maybe a little bit about, um, you know, Basler turbo conversions and the work that you did with them to, to preserve the aircraft. Sure. So the airplane was actually found uh, by two Air Force historians. Now, a lot of folks read the story that an Air Force, unnamed Air Force historian uh, found the airplane. But uh, he would like us to acknowledge the fact that it was a team effort. Uh, he was participating with another member of the Air Force Historical Research Agency when they found the plane. His name was Matt Scales, and the other gentleman's name is Ken Tilly. Basically, uh, Matt was researching a squadron rumor. Uh, you know, he flew with a tanker unit down there in Alabama and uh, transferred over to the AFHRA, uh, you know, to basically pursue a career as a historian. And he had heard the rumor that their squadron led the invasion. And, you know, water cooler talk and squadrons, things like that. It wasn't really clear where it came from, but his initial research revealed they flew B-25s in the South Pacific. Uh, so he was like, no, our legacy unit didn't do that. But it was in a conversation with Ken Tilly that Matt basically said, hey, you know, I'm curious. You know, what do you think about this? And Ken said, have you checked what happened to the squadron leaders and the personnel? A lot of times the number doesn't necessarily line up with what happened to the personnel. So uh, he started researching the, the group commander, uh, a man named John M. Donaldson. And it was in the course of following his career through the war that he ran upon the 438th Troop Carrier Group's records. And in reading them, as he passed June 5th, there was a bunch of entries about the preparations for D-Day because the 438th is the group of record that leads the invasion. And uh, he basically stumbles on a reference that says, you know, Lieutenant Colonel Donaldson flew aircraft 847, you know, as the lead ship tonight. And he said, what, 847, you know, that's interesting. Turn to where the mechanics in charge of the airplanes have a listing of the aircraft they're responsible for. And the only one that went in as 847 was 4292847. And he wrote it down and said, you know, a lot of C-47s survived. I wonder what happened to that one. And uh, he went looking for it and found that the airplane had, in fact, survived. He found it in the FAA registry as a still airworthy airplane out in Arizona at that time. And, uh, you know, what started was a, a number of months of sort of journey for him, trying to get the Air Force Museum to take it, trying to get the Smithsonian to take it. And uh, he basically didn't have any luck. And so kind of feeling like he struck out, he did kind of step away from the project for a while. And uh, 
try to think about other ways to, to get this airplane saved. Uh, you know, as we all do, revisiting the project a few years down the road, he searched the serial number again and saw that the ownership of the airplane had changed. And it was registered to a company in Oshkosh, Wisconsin called Basler Turbo Conversions. And he thought, you know, wow, that's amazing. A new company has it. I'll call them. I'll tell them what it is. And maybe they'll, they'll find a use for it. And uh, before he got their phone number, you know, he went online to look for their phone number. And he actually found their website and kind of was immediately stricken with, oh, my gosh, they cut these up. So he called Basler immediately. Uh, the folks at Basler remember getting this phone call from a panicked researcher basically saying, is 847 in your boneyard? <laughs> and, and, uh, turned, you with the torch, drop it. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. So he found out that uh, he found out 847 was in the boneyard. And uh, Randy Myers over at Basler actually walked outside with the phone, looked, saw the airplane, said, yes, it is still here. And Matt was thrown into a sort of frenzied panic uh, he reached out to media outlets wherever he was able to try to just make them aware that this piece of American history was was at risk of being cut up. And uh, so he he reached out to the media. And the only news outlet that carried his story was the Whitman Airport Regional Blog. And thank God, this is a big piece of serendipity here. Uh, on our staff, there's a man named Steve Buss. Uh, he's an Oshkosh guy, you know, a Wisconsin hometown boy. We're familiar with him. Yeah. <laughs> uh, for your listeners, he knows the difference between a fresh cheese curd and one that has been flown in. He knows where Hughes Chocolate is located. Um, he was also a director of a Young Eagles program for many years and, uh, and uh, a fixture here and still volunteers every summer. And we pay him in cheese curds, apparently. Yes, <laughs> when when you phone EAA, I think you actually still hear his voice. Yeah, so we still hear his voice yeah. in quite a few places around here. So, so Steve worked across the hallway from me, and he basically uh, handed me a copy of this Whitman Airport blog and said, hey, is it possible that the airplane that led the D-Day invasion is in a boneyard in Wisconsin? And I looked at him like he had five heads and said, no. Uh, just uh, for the record, Steve Bush has just the one. Just the just one, one head. head. Yeah, so I was like, no, there's no way. Uh, as a Canadian immigrant, uh, I found that Americans experience patriotism differently. You guys love your history. You know, One of the first things I did when I moved here was I, I watched the rodeo in Houston. And a lady came out standing on the back of a white horse and rode around the arena carrying an American flag while they shot fireworks inside a building. And the whole country just went, whoa, you know, we are American. We do that on my birthday, too. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> I said, there's no red-blooded American who would stand by and let that happen to that important piece of history. So I said, yeah, I'll look into it. And so I said, you know, reasonably quickly, this will be easy to disprove. And at the end of the day, I couldn't. At the end of the week, I couldn't. And about two months in, I still hadn't managed to disprove it. I still hadn't managed to connect with this Air Force historian that, you the know, previously unnamed Air Force historian. <laughs> and uh, so we, we just kind of dug into it and, and started searching around. And we stumbled onto about two months into this, an incredible piece of footage that was released from the National Archives through a company called Critical Past, which showed the airplane. And it showed known characters to us, old Mo Mosley. It showed Brereton, showed Donaldson, these guys, their characters. And it showed that airplane and its tail number printed on the airplane as 292847. And as it kind of rolled by, we saw its name. And there it was, that's all brother on the front of the airplane. And I thought, oh, my God, that's amazing. They have this airplane. And then in a split second, another thought passed through my mind, which is, 
I've been messing around with this for two months, and it was in imminent danger when I got this. And so we pretty quickly reached out to Basler, confirmed they still had it. And uh, what followed was a series of rash decisions uh, <laughs> undertaken by myself and, and others in the CAF, wherein we invested the last $20,000 in our aircraft acquisition fund uh, in a non-refundable deposit to Basler to ensure that the airplane would go back, further back in the line. Just wait. Give us one year to figure out how to raise the money to get the airplane. And, uh, and we did. So when you, uh, when you started the Kickstarter program, um, and I, I remember watching it and being very excited and happy to say that, that I was a contributor. And uh, as we were joking earlier, um, one day my name will be on the door, I think, on the inside. And then you're going to remove it because we don't like each other very much. Um, <laughs> I'm jealous of your Harrison Ford interactions. I'm a closeted Star so Wars fan. <laughs> ask, ask me about the time I, I have a picture with both Harrison Ford and George Lucas at the same time. But uh, that's neither here nor there. Anyway, back to you for a moment. <laughs> um what was the initial goal for the Kickstarter campaign? So we went out looking for $75,000. Uh, we had the expectation that that'd be really hard to get that. Uh, Kickstarter, you don't get anything if you don't get it all. Uh, so we were like, 75000 that's a pretty steep ask. Uh, let's see what happens. And uh, what happened? Well, <laughs> thanks to the gracious contributions of people like Hal Bryan, Chris Henry, and a number of others, um, we got 388000 I think it was, uh, in 30 wow. days. In 30 wow. days. That is, just, that is incredible. That That's is so wonderful incredible. to see. Uh, not to bounce around too much, but you were talking earlier about how uh, media outlets and things have picked up on this. Uh, just the announcement of the impending flight made the New York Times. I just saw that uh, wow, yesterday. Wow, really? Jeez. Uh, I don't recall if that was the print edition or the online version, but uh, it was regardless. Online, incredible. as far as I know. Uh, you know, media outlets have come to be great partners in all of this. Uh, it's been interesting to see how organizations, including our own, have been evolved and, and sort of driven to evolve by the story. Um, you know, Basler early on, I think a lot of people had this kind of impression that maybe they're this evil corporation that just wants to cut up these airplanes. Truth is, you know, nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, they're an amazing group of people with an incredible skill set that give these old airplanes a new lease on life. Uh, I think you'll agree. We just didn't want it to happen to this particular one. Um, it's it's not a fate worse than death for any of the others. But, um, you know, the other thing that was really exciting was they just they came in and they supported the project and they owned it. And you could talk to the guys over there and just find out that they were really enthusiastic to work on the airplane. And there's something restorative to the soul uh, for folks that have rebuilt this one when they're engaged in the conversion process for so many others because they're not blind to the fact that they're taking these vintage airplanes that have this incredible and illustrious history and you know converting them but uh you know like i say it, it's really been it's been exciting to just see how they have followed the journey and participated um you know it's it's just really great and the media has been the same you know folks who started carrying the story early on with the Kickstarter and everything, they've stuck with us and they've checked back with us. And, you know, even with other news stories going on in, in Wisconsin this week, uh, we had a full house over there with people at local stations, USA Today, um, even the, the aviation magazines are just keyed up to, to get any piece of news about this and to, to use it in their publications and so on. You know, and, and uh, very quickly, um, it'd be great to hear kind words about uh, about Basler. They're certainly they're neighbors of ours here, and they're and we consider them uh, great neighbors. Um, 
as a quick uh, plug for our own publication, if you uh, want to learn more about Basler and their operations, uh, the uh, February 2018 issue of Sport Aviation has a, a terrific feature written by uh, our uh, assistant editor Megan Esau, and uh, so a lot of good, a uh, lot of good coverage there. Um, let me let me add one w quick thing about Basler. No, uh, okay, oh. yes, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> so, geez, tough crowd. It is um, isn't a very tough. Room. So, you know, I, I think it's really important to say that when we talked about what to do with the airplane, we did look around the whole country and we looked at a lot of warbird restoration shops and places like that. And what we ultimately determined was that there was no one else in the country who could undertake this project at the scale in which we intended to tackle it. Um, you know, we were basically going down to the bare frame of the airplane, uh, not unlike how Douglas built them to begin with. And so uh, we, were, we were basically challenged to find people with the heavy industrial ability, the skill set, the know-how, and even access to Douglas's original engineering drawings. And so the, Basler was like a match made in heaven for us because their incredible skill set rebuilding these airplanes gives them the ability to do corrosion mitigation, gives them the ability to, to even disassemble pieces of the airplane in a really fast and efficient way. Uh, you know, they do a wing change in a matter of a few hours. They take them off, do the inspection, put them back on. You know, for, for us as a volunteer-driven organization, that can take months when we do it to our C-47s. Yeah, it's really incredible what, uh, what, what Basler does as far as the conversions go. I mean, they take basically a 75 or more year old airplane and turn it out as a zero-timed airplane that's completely equipped for modern use. So, you know, you've got a, an airplane that saw service as a C-47 or an airliner, uh, has an amazing illustrious history, and now it's going back into service for another 30, 40 years or maybe more. Um, and they've actually started a, uh, they, they've kind of gotten into the straight DC-3 restoration business kind of as a result of the That's All Brother project. Is that correct? Well, we weren't first. Uh, they had done a restoration on a Swiss Air DC-3 for okay. a gentleman over in Europe. Um, but yeah, you know, we, we have kind of blazed a path here, uh, set a template for what a, what a C-47 should look like. Um, you know, I think it's been, it's been a really funny journey because I guess I assumed when we started this, like, Hey, I can pick up a modeling book and it's going to tell me what color it should be inside. And then you find out, well, no, actually not so much. Um, you know, maybe you can find a modeling book where it's written, but it's not well sourced and they don't have a great paint code. Meanwhile, uh, you know, you go down to Warbird Alley at AirVenture and they're like, we have the exact shade of olive drab yeah. inside this Mustang because we know exactly how much lamp black was mixed in on the Inglewood paint line. <laughs> you know, meanwhile, you've got this other icon, the C-47, you know, more than 10,000 of these airframes built. And you're like, what do they look like inside? And people are like, well, I guess green. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, you know, in... in I picked that particular example because when we went back to the original photography from that night, we found out, no, they're not all the same. They're not all just one base shade of green. In fact, That's All Brother was unpainted inside, except for a sort of spritzing of zinc chromate over it as an anti-corrosive. Uh, you know, you could see the alclad markings through the inside of the airplane. And so the challenge goes to us to figure out how to replicate that uh, while properly sealing the metal for posterity's sake. But, you know, just, just to know that we really were blazing a path here in some way. That, by the way, that concept of a spritzing of zinc chromate was very Martha Stewart. <laughs> That's what I immediately heard in my head. That is just, fantastic. I love Martha. Are you, gonna, are you guys going to sell like some sort of candles for your house that smell like the inside of That's All Brother now? And, yeah, I, I, think, uh, I think there's some rules against hydraulic fluid smelling uh, uh, candles, but I don't know. <laughs> well, and, you know, it was really 
kind of an honor to get a chance to, <clears throat> excuse me, to, it was an honor to get a chance to have some of our docents come over and help you guys out. I think they worked with Ray. Yeah. Um, and uh, it was kind of ironic that the date was right around June 6th when they were over there. Yeah, so we had uh, we had a bit of work that needed doing that uh, didn't lend itself to all the experienced technicians over at Basler. Um necessarily you know investing a lot of time in it so we were able to open the restoration up for folks here locally to participate and uh, Chris don't be bashful you were there you came over and you were a big part of this so was Zach Boffman another uh, EA employee who's involved with the museum and uh, you guys came over and basically scraped off an insulation glue that one of its civilian owners had applied over top of its original finish uh, some people would ask you know why couldn't we save the original finish inside the airplane that's why uh, someone did us the great favor of basically binding uh, insulation matting to the inside of the fuselage. And it had to be removed so that we could apply that paint coat. And uh, just took hundreds of hours of, of folks over there scrubbing with some solvents and things like that. And uh, what was really, really amazing was that it happened over the week of June 6th, earlier this year. And uh, I wasn't able to be there, but I did get a text message that the folks who had been inside scrubbing the airplane, yourself included, uh, had actually hung an American flag out the window of the airplane on June 6th. And, you know, looking at that picture, looking at the text message, I was just like, wow, who'd have thought that we went from like, God, we don't know if we can save it to, yes, we're definitely going to. And we definitely can't fail because of the depth of support that we have from people who, who care about this stuff and who are passionate about aviation. The, you mentioned June 6th, of course, the anniversary of, of D-Day. Now, up in 2019, we're coming up on the 75th uh, anniversary. If my Sooner than right. you would know, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, can you tell me about uh, about the, uh, the plans you have for the airplane uh, in 2019? Yeah, so uh, the big driver here is sort of like constantly uh, unrelenting and unforgiving is the collapse of the timeline. You know, we're... We're committed to take the airplane back to Normandy for the 75th anniversary. Uh, and the reason we're, we're doing that is because it's the last major commemorative event where appreciable numbers of veterans will actually be able to be there. And so we think it's really important to reunite these guys with this, this icon, with this vessel of their story, and just basically be a part of the commemorations. We want to fly it back over the beaches while people are over there. And, and while the media is paying attention to the story, you know, we want to bring a lot of attention to to the sacrifices and, and to the basically the cost that was paid for Europe's freedom by young American men. And uh, so, you know, that means we have to fly the airplane across the Atlantic. There's no great option to cut the tail off in the wings and put it in a boat or anything like that. <laughs> um, but, you know, luckily, we're not the only ones planning to do this. Uh, there's a group called Dax Over Normandy that is assembling, you know, a, a large formation of dozens of airplanes that want to leave America, fly back to France, and and participate. So that's all, brother, is going to be leading a formation of C-47s once more over the Normandy coastline. Wow. We wow. intend for it to be dropping round shoot jumpers. You know, we're going to go whole hog on this thing and basically just, you know, put on a display so that the not, not, not only so we can be proud of our veterans, but so that the French and, and everyone in Europe can, can really remember that part of the story, too. Uh, now, people always follow on this question with, will it follow its original route? The answer is no. Uh, in the spring of 1944, uh, as That's All Brother was getting ready to ship out to England, they had a rash of accidents on the northern route. 
and they shut it down in the course of investigating what was happening to the airplanes. And so she went this, the mid-Atlantic route, leaving out of Florida and flying across the mid-Atlantic. We won't be doing that because a lot of the airplanes joining us on the journey are civilian interiors, and you can't fit them with ferry tanks. It's wrong to say, hey, tear that couch out of here and you know, put a fuel bladder in there. <laughs> like Chris did at his house, yes. for example. So, so those, those guys need a better assortment of alternate airports for obvious reasons, and so the, the northern route really is, is chosen for that reason. So I'm going to get a little hippy-dippy here for just a second, which is unusual for me. But um, We'll forgive you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, hold that thought. <laughs> I want that in writing. I, I should have heard, heard what he yet, said, yeah. right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I heard the question. But, uh, you know, I, I, these airplanes have personalities. Um, and I think any historic artifact like this has uh, – you know, there's there's something to it. There's something in it, and and a machine like an airplane. Um, I can't say that it has a soul, but I, I've met a few that I think did. No, C forty sevens definitely do. And so you just wonder. Maybe this isn't even a question, but but do you ever do you ever stop and think that you know if the airplane could talk, what would it be saying about doing this all again seventy five years later with no flak? Oh, yeah. Hopefully. <laughs> yeah, I've got one it would be saying right now. It's too cold in Wisconsin. It's Let's go to France. <laughs> yeah. Let's go to so, France. So, yeah, it's, I think anyone who's been around old planes will tell you they definitely do have a soul. There's no question, uh, especially things like C-47s, DC-3s that have just flown so much and for so many different reasons. Right. Um, I, I think that... Um, what the you know aside from the joke about it being cold, I think it really would be uh, enthusiastic about the story being told. Um, you know the reason I paused there for a minute is when I first saw the airplane, I, I flew up here to Oshkosh, and you know I actually I flew to Milwaukee, drove to Oshkosh. I'm not a private pilot, so I don't get the privilege of flying into Whitman Regional. Um, <laughs> we'll work on that. Yeah. So I, I go into the Basler facility, and the airplane was outside. I climbed up in it, and you know, sort of like, yeah, 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 yeah. I need to see the data plate. Then I'll know. I'll know for sure when I see the data plate. So I climb climb up through the fuselage, look at the data plate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As I'm walking back out, I was passing over the freight floor, this old crummy wooden floor, not in any way representative of what it should have been. But when I got to the door threshold, I stopped and was just overcome with this sensation and it's, it's happening to me again right now, uh, that that was the spot. That was the door threshold. That was the very spot where we kicked this thing off. You know, when the 101st was formed uh, before World War II, the, the initial commander said the 101st is a division with no history, but with a rendezvous with destiny. And I realized at that moment that this is where they stepped out to attend that rendezvous with destiny. And that's when I knew the airplane was the airplane. And the data plate, you know, it's there. It matches. But when you stand in that door and you look out, it's hard not to see the sort of dark night sky over Normandy. There's something so... That was very, very well put, Keegan, by the way. There's something so powerful about to me about Warbirds in particular. Um, I mean, all vintage aircraft. But something like this specifically 
the, uh, the the soldiers jumping out and jumping into the the, the blackness and and the unknown. Um, you know, these kids trying to save the world and you know and ultimately succeeding. Um, you, you wonder too what what they would be thinking or how incomprehensible it would it would seem to them to say that you know seventy five years later you know now we're what seventy uh, seventy three seventy four years later um, you know we're gonna we're gonna fix this airplane up and we're going to we're going to fly it and and show it off and commemorate this and we're going to be able to do it in a way that people can sort of savor it and see it and appreciate it and enjoy it. Um, you know the whole the whole concept of wartime. I think World War II, perhaps more so than any other, is just about everything. We're just nothing else matters but the war effort. Everything we do, we're just pushing forward. We're not thinking about anything other than than victory and and after the war. And you know, people obviously had affection for the airplanes and appreciated them uh, at that time. But for us now to be able just to stop and and take a breath and see an airplane like this. And, you know, give it its, uh, its long overdue time in the spotlight. I think there's something extremely powerful about that. Well, I promise you they were thinking about one extra thing, which is, do I really have to jump out of this airplane? <laughs> uh, it know, seems perfectly good. I, yeah, I met with a bunch of paratroopers in the process of doing this, and so I set myself the challenge of, of being in their shoes. So I convinced a friend of mine to take me flying in his C-47, and uh, you know they harnessed me up and everything else, and I said, I'm going to go and stand in the door and look out. I never made it to the door. I was so stricken by fear and just a, a bunch of complex sort of terrified emotions that I stopped about four feet shy of the door and just basically held on for dear life, clinging to the inside of the airplane going, Oh my God, ah, no. <laughs> and so, yeah, there's, there's a, you know, there was a whole complex set of feelings that went with what they were doing. But one thing that has been really great is every one of them that we've spoken to about this airplane is, is truly behind the project. Um, you know, one of the one of the lead ups just before the Kickstarter was we met with Jim Pee Wee Martin of G Company of the 506th. And though we didn't jump out of this airplane, um, he knew there had to be a lead airplane somewhere and was just amazed that we had found it. But in talking to him, he basically gave us the energy we needed to push forward with the Kickstarter because he said, you have to do this. You know, I went back to Normandy for the 70th anniversary. This is his words, you know, and he jumped out of an airplane. And he landed in the fields in Normandy again. And so you, for him to stand there and say, you have to do this so that I have an airplane to jump out of for the 75th. This is really important. Gosh. How old must he be? At, uh, he was 93 point. at the time that he made the jump. And so you can sort of extrapolate from there. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And he means it. He's going to be there ready to jump. So. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, you know, he, he was here with us at the first air venture and helped, uh, well, not the first air venture, but the first air venture we attended with the airplane, which was summer 2015. Uh, he was here to help us basically take ownership of the airplane uh, when we signed the bill of sale. That's uh, awesome. Thanks to the Kickstarter donors. Like, if you really wondered where that money went, uh, it really was directly invested in this project immediately following the Kickstarter. Um, that, like I said, 22,000 hours of work, even though some of it is volunteer, much of it is, uh, you know, at reduced shop rates and, and so on. But you also have to buy the materials and the parts, so mm -hmm. the money has been well used. Um, if I might add one quick thing, uh, the airplane isn't finished yet. You know, 22,000 hours has taken us to a functional, sound, mechanically working airplane. 
but it hasn't taken us to the museum piece that we all know it should be. Well, and, you know, I know there were some uh, people that I think you wanted to say thank you to uh, as well. So, you know, uh, one of the great things that came out of the Kickstarter was a lot of people reached out to us and said, um, my dad flew on that airplane or my uncle flew on that airplane. And and a lot of them, they didn't quite have the right airplane or or what have you. But a few of them did. Uh, You know, we were able to find families for most of the crew and and many of the paratroopers that were on board the airplane. And they've they've given us some of the much needed uh, drive to get get out there and get this done uh, you know they followed the project they talk with us uh, we you know we, we've even had some of them up here to see the airplane and for them it's it's a really moving thing to to find out that this group of people who you've never met and that you didn't know about uh, are working to save your family's history and the story of what your relatives did in the war and I say all that because as, as part of the CAF I get to experience that 165 times over we have more than 165 flying World War II airplanes, and they that's everyone else's families, too, you know, that built these, that flew them. And just like we have it for That's All Brother, a lot of our other aircraft in our fleet have that, too. So, Guy, we're talking about preserving history and how important it is. We've had a few uh, uh, moments here, thanks to you, because of one of the things that you have on loan to us. The CAF currently has your nose art collection here. Um, just have to say uh, thank you for letting us uh, have that um, that experience, because we've 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 had a few veterans here that actually flew missions on those airplanes. Yeah, so we have to we have to extend the debt of gratitude actually to you guys. Uh, folks know that we're in the process of moving from Midland to Dallas and constructing a new facility in Dallas. And so EA helped us in a, in a pretty, pretty significant bind, which was we needed a place where we could put those on display. Um, because if we'd put them in storage, like so many of the other items we have in our collection, it would have uh, basically meant the last five years of a lot of those veterans' lives that those items were in storage. So keeping them on display was paramount, and uh, you guys enabled us to do that. So. I couldn't couldn't be more grateful to you guys for being such great stewards of, of what is a loaned collection, and uh, just hope you don't kick us out. <laughs> well, you know, to, to to kind of roll it back to this kind of piece of living history, like you were alluding to before, with uh, you know, with that's all, brother. I, I think the artwork is amazing, um, but when I walk up to those panels, the the thing that really gets me is when I mean that is probably the biggest collection of combat veteran pieces of, you know, pieces of airplanes uh, in the world, really, uh, you know, in one place. And you look through those panels, you look at the the patches in the aluminum, you realize that there were real people fighting and dying behind those panels. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and, and that's very powerful to me. That, that's, that's a great way to put it, Tom. I mean, if you look at the CAF inventory just in general, um, you see the airplanes that we have, you see the nose art collection we have. Every one of those is an incredible historical sort of time capsule in its own right. But um, it's not so much what the airplane is, but what the airplane means or, or what the artwork means. And and you're right. You hit it right on the head, which is that people fought behind these. They died behind them. They created the world we live in today, and we owe them an enormous amount of gratitude. Uh, you know, I know there's a lot of sort of political tomfoolery that goes around the use of the word greatest generation and people say oh you know is that really fair and yeah it is because 
they took on tyranny in its purest form for the sake of freedom, you know, and and went overseas and gave up their lives and their livelihoods in many cases and basically just went to fight for what was right. And everything we have is a, is a lasting symbol of that time and of those people. Here, here. Well, Keegan, that uh, brings us to a uh, pretty good spot to wrap up this episode, I think. Uh, we can't thank you enough for uh, taking some time out of your schedule while you're here in Oshkosh to join us. Congratulations uh, today. Yeah, that, well done. It, uh, I can't imagine uh, what you're really feeling, even though you've been very articulate about, about trying to express it. What a, what a terrific milestone. Um, thanks. Uh, a quick shout-out to uh, Leah Block for uh, keeping us uh, apprised of times and things like that and, and making sure that, uh, that we were able to get to where we wanted to be so we could see it. We could uh, uh, do a little bit of photo and video work ourselves to help, uh, help spread the word and, and extend our congratulations. I'd like to add just one thing, because I think your listeners might like it. Um, for a piece of poetry, uh, the man who flew this airplane into the boneyard was a C-47 pilot uh, named Doug Rosendahl. Uh, you know, fast forward all this time later, more than a decade, uh, Doug is a CAF member. He was actually the first person to stand up and throw money into the kitty for this airplane. He was the first person to sponsor the aircraft and really to get behind it and say, you know, as a member, I support what, what you guys are trying to do. And it was just a, a simple piece of poetry to see him lift that airplane off the ground. He flew it into the boneyard, and he flew it out. That's fantastic. I knew he was flying it today. I didn't realize he was the one who'd flown it in. I, I've flown with Doug once, maybe twice. And, uh, boy, a good guy and a, and a great pilot. Or a great, great pilot and a greater guy? I don't know. Whatever it is. We'll have to get them on one of these days. So, Keegan, congratulations, and thanks uh, thanks once again for joining us. Thanks, as always, to everyone out there listening. Thanks for the feedback, uh, the ratings and reviews on iTunes and places like that. Keep listening. Keep subscribing. Keep uh, letting us know what you think about the show, uh, what you'd like to hear. Comment on our blog. Send email to feedback at ea.org, uh, whatever you can do. And with that, uh, we'll sign off for now. Until next time, when you're cleared to land on the green dot.